Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for our online service here at City Church. If you're new to this uh, online service, my name's Jay. I'm the director of worship, and it's a joy to be able to lead you in worship this morning. I'm going to begin our service with a call to worship from 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 through 9. So listen to these words as we begin our service together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. O God of mercy, we come to you, many of us currently experiencing trial. Many of us have recently come out of a season of trials. And the rest of us, certainly, understanding that trials will come, even if we aren't currently facing them. So my prayer this morning, Lord, is for these trials to produce what Peter writes in this passage, that they would result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Use these trials of our lives to strengthen our faith in you, that we would worship you. May we lift our heads this morning in the middle of our trials and remember your mercy toward us through the living hope found in Jesus Christ. Help us look toward the inheritance that you are keeping for us in heaven. But until we receive this inheritance, may we sing together in the midst of our trials and worship you, our good God. Please meet us here today through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Sing together. For the poor and Lost and lonely, for the thieves will come and confess. Know that you are holy. Know that you are holy. Though we'll sing out hallelujah.
time. Lift your voice. When peace like a river
City Church family, it's great to be with you, especially with you uh, students that might be watching or listening. I want to say congratulations, especially to those who are graduating, and I'm really sorry uh, the last year and some change has been the way that it has been for you. So those of you who are graduating, congratulations. Uh, praise God for sustaining you, even though it's been a really difficult season. We love you very much. If we haven't been able to see you very much, I hope that we will be able to connect at some point in person, even on down the road if you're going off somewhere else for a job or whatever the situation might be. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community walking with God in our city. We would love to get to know you. One of the best ways that that can happen these days is when you uh, fill out a virtual connection card, citychurchgnv.com slash connection, citychurchgnv.com slash connection. Please consider going there, just putting your name list, know you're watching, um, put your prayer requests. We pray for you every week when we get those requests during our staff meeting. It's also a great way for you to ask us questions and get to know more about who we are, and we are very responsive to that form. You'll find more information about our church that way as well. We worship a generous God, part of our responsive worship as the people of God, is giving generously. You can give online, citychurchgmv.com uh, slash give, or you can come to an in-person service. We are currently meeting outdoors on Sunday mornings at first magnitude, just a quarter mile or so from our building, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. So if you're watching this and thinking, man, I'd love to get to know those guys, you can do that outdoors right now, 9 or 1045 at First Magnitude. We would love to see you. In fact, this week we are having a baptism celebration between those services at 1020 a.m. So if you live in Gainesville and you happen to be watching this really early on Sunday morning, you can actually sprint out to First Magnitude and get there by 1020, and you can join us uh, for this baptism celebration. Our community groups will continue to meet uh, for another five, six weeks. They go on a break from Memorial Day weekend to July 4th weekend, but it's not too late to participate. Um, so you can go online, citychurchgnv.com slash cg, citychurchgnv.com slash cg. All the information is there. Those groups are generally meeting outdoors, or if not, they're meeting online. But most are meeting outdoors these days. It's not, again, it's not too late. Great way to connect with people, get to know people uh, from your community. Thank you to those of you who made our Music of the City night possible on Friday, this past Friday night. Really wonderful time. Several musicians from our church played songs, several musicians from the community. We raised some money for the Gainesville Fine Arts Association. It was just altogether fantastic if you missed it. And we do something like this again down the road. I hope that you will participate. You'll come and watch. And again, thank you to those who, who actually played their music to help us raise these funds. It was a beautiful night together as a church family. One more announcement coming up uh, Monday, May 3rd at 7 o'clock. We are actually starting a four-week class on civic engagement. Four-week class on civic engagement. Uh, Monday, May 3rd. And it's going to be 7, basically to 8.45, and it's in the sanctuary. So this will be the first event we've really had in our sanctuary uh, since February of 2020. And so, again, if you live in Gainesville, Lashua County area, we'd love to see you. It will be some, uh, some of it will be teaching, a lot of discussion, and this will be, this will be, we're going for it. We're going to be talking about how our faith um, applies to things like political engagement, uh, race, and uh, race and justice, things like that. So 
Monday, May 3rd, starting at 7 o'clock uh, until about 8.45, four-week class. Um, and I hope that we will see you there, and you can find more information on our website. Now, I am very blessed to let you know that we are, for the first time since February, there's a lot of firsts today, first time since February of 2020, we are actually having a guest uh, preacher here at City Church. He's not really a guest because he and his wife are very faithful members of our church, but Brian Capel will be preaching for you. He's married to Diane. As I mentioned, faithful members of our church. Brian has been uh, basically a senior pastor, solo pastor of Spar Baptist Church for a number of years. Before that, he was a worship pastor in Ocala, in Miami, and then before that, Melbourne. So lots of years of faithful pastoral leadership, musically and in preaching, and so it's a gift from God that he is going to be bringing the word for us. A couple of things that tell you something about the grace of God and how good he has been to our church family. Uh, back in July of 2020, we actually went to Brian, myself and Ryan, and said, hey, can you please prepare a backup sermon? Uh, there's a good chance we're going to need it this year. You know, if someone gets sick or gets some exposure to COVID, can you have a backup sermon ready to go? And Brian agreed to do that, and he picked the passage from James that he's going to be preaching for you uh, right now. And interestingly, that was before we ever decided to do a sermon series in the book of James, which began in January. So we assumed we would need this sermon, and we didn't need it, and we didn't need it because no one was getting sick or, or exposed. And so eventually we started an actual series in the book of James, and, and time went on. And we said, okay, Brian, if we get to James chapter 5, and we still haven't needed your backup sermon yet, you are preaching your sermon in James chapter 5. I wanted to mention uh, this just to kind of let you know that God has really, 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 really blessed us these last 12 months um, and, and helped us through a very fraught and difficult time. He's given us a lot of stability and he's protected us and so praise his name for that. Also, the second grace that I want to mention is that this is what Brian is preaching on um, now is something that he's really lived and so he's not preaching just theoretically here. He's preaching um, from real life. And so with that being said, I would love to welcome Brian Capel. Well, thank you, Chipper. It's uh, always a great joy and privilege to open God's Word with you. And uh, uh, we've been studying, as Chipper said, through the book of James in this series entitled Pure Religion. And uh, we'll pick up today where we left off last week in James chapter 5. And so I invite you to open your Bible uh, to James chapter 5 uh, and read along as I read Scripture. And uh, it'll also appear on the screen. Uh, but James chapter 5, beginning with verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is merciful and compassionate. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for 
the privilege of joining together for the technology that allows us to do this um, virtually. We thank you, Father, for your word. And as always, Lord, our prayer is that as we deal with the text, as we open your word and we feast upon it, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and illumination to know uh, what you are communicating to us. But Father, also that he would give us wisdom to know how to leave this time together and to live out your word in obedience. We love you, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whether we realize it or not, we've all been better schooled in the subject of suffering. We didn't sign up for the class, but we got enrolled anyway. The coursework has been rigorous, and it's been comprehensive. It's included learning experiences that were both personal and vicarious, both individual and corporate. And after a year of coping with a global pandemic, we just passed the 3 million mark in terms of global COVID deaths. COVID has become a prefix attached to a majority of our everyday activities, and it has radically altered the rhythms and the rites of passage of life. Births, weddings, funerals, graduations, holidays have just not been the same this last year. And as you know, it has also impacted church life. And so while we're on the subject, I'll do a little aside here, give you an inside perspective on ministry. Ministry can be encouraging and exhilarating, exasperating and overwhelming. And that's on a good day and usually on the same day. Throw in pandemic and all of the challenges that come with that. And as a pastor, you find yourself trying to balance biblical mandates like don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. And balancing that with a, a biblical uh, command that, that tells us to obey the leaders that have been put in, pl in place of authority over us. Uh, recognizing that every decision that you make as a pastor has the potential to have significant impact on the entire church family physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our pastors have been so good to, to thank our volunteers, to encourage our church family for their faithfulness. And so let me encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to, to just say a word of thanks to our pastors, Chipper, Ryan, and, and Jay. And they would be the first to tell you that they have not walked through this process alone. Our elders and our deacons, our ministry assistant, our ministry interns, um, a, a, a team of people who have given them guidance uh, through this process. Uh, and so just take an opportunity, if you would, to, to, to express your gratitude and thanksgiving for everything that they have done for our church family. Because the reality is, we have been forced to adapt in ways that we could never have imagined. We've also seen graphic reminders that suffering is no respecter of persons. Perhaps you saw the image last week of Queen Elizabeth II sitting isolated and alone in the royal chapel there in Windsor Castle, attending the funeral of her husband of 74 years, Prince Philip. Royal funerals are planned way in advance, and it's estimated that it was originally planned for about 800 attendees. And instead, in the age of COVID, there were 30 family members attending his funeral. In addition, we're witnessing significant civil, political, and social upheaval in our nation, as well as new and ongoing tensions around the world. 
And so let's be honest. We would be justified in feeling like we live in one of those snow globes and somebody has come along and shaken it and we're just waiting for things to settle out. Like the book of James, the verses that I just read are incredibly countercultural. And the message for the church is unequivocal. Be patient in suffering. You see, it clearly communicates what a God-honoring response looks like in the midst of suffering. So today we look at two reflections that will hopefully help us to understand this exhortation better. In the context of suffering, patience keeps us grounded in God's justice, and patience keeps us grounded in God's mercy. Let's look at that first one. If you're like me, you've been told many times over the course of your life, be patient. And the reality is that's probably not what you wanted to hear in that moment. I know for me it was true in my childhood, and it's also been true in my life as an adult. You throw in some inconvenience, the stakes are raised exponentially. Add a dose of suffering, and we're mapping out an exit strategy. Because we'll do just about anything to avoid suffering of any kind. Uh, Just a quick reminder from last week, many of James' readers are poor, And worse still, they're working hard and they're getting nowhere fast. Not because their hours have been cut, not because they've been furloughed or laid off. Instead, their employees are withholding their wages. Their employers, James tells us, are not just withholding their wages, they are hoarding overwhelming abundance. James says your riches, think grains full of silo, or silos full of grain, are rotting in storage. There are so many clothes in your closet that you haven't touched for so long. They are moth-eaten and riddled with holes. Your gold and silver have gone untouched for so long they're corroded. James here is addressing those who are suffering unjustly, who are being exploited by the self-indulgent rich. And just to clarify, the suffering that we're dealing with today is not the testing or temptation to which James refers back in chapter 1. To be sure, seasons of suffering will often test our limits and they can tempt us to respond in a less than Christ-like manner. But here is real pain and real distress caused by unjust real-life circumstances. James has two goals for his readers in in these verses. First of all, he wants to prevent them from taking matters into their own hands. And secondly, to remind them of the redemptive purposes, the redemptive aspects of suffering. Last week, we saw James give the rich believers a very grim warning that they were storing up the wrong kind of treasure. See Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And they were doing this at the expense of their employees' livelihood, who, by the way, were also believers. The warning that James gave was grounded in a promise that Jesus would one day return to bring in a day of judgment that will bring perfect peace And final judgment, every wrong will be made right, and every right will be rewarded. And so James massages that message this morning into a word of encouragement for those who are suffering oppression. He says, be patient in light of this promise of Jesus' return. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. And so it begs the question, what does this kind of patience look like? What does it mean to be patient? When that word patience is is used in reference to God, it refers to a divine restraint that leaves room, that leaves time for repentance. 
Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Because where there is repentance, forgiveness comes. But where there is no repentance, divine judgment comes in due time. When patience is used in reference to man, it suggests a sense of victorious persistence, not flowing out of a noble human heart, but, but out of a confident trust in the promises of a holy and righteous God. The promise that despite our suffering, God will indeed make things right in due time. It's a call to live like God's promises are greater than our circumstances because, by the way, they are. Interestingly enough, this kind of patience is not passive. It's very active. It's not about crawling under a rock until the storm passes over. There is a persistence, a sense of perseverance in this kind of patience. And to drive that point home, James gives us the illustration of the farmer. The farmer knows that there's a time and a season for everything. The early rains will come around planting time to help stimulate germination in the seeds that have been planted in the ground. The latter rains come just before harvest to bring the fruit to maturity. And in God's time, the crop will come, but the farmer must wait patiently. However, that doesn't prevent the farmer from actively being involved because he knows that the soil won't repair itself. He knows that the seeds won't plant themselves. And he knows that weeds and pests will not miraculously avoid his fields because he's being patient and waiting and trusting in the provision of God. He also knows that the harvest will not one day gather itself in. And so James says, be patient, establish your hearts, literally strengthen your heart. Here's a picture of perfect inner peace that results from a confidence in the faithfulness of God. James also knows that there is a tendency, a human tendency, that when we are suffering, when we find ourselves under pressure, we often have a tendency to take it out on other people. And so James says, don't grumble against one another's brother. Misery loves company, does it not? James warns them of this tendency, and he says, in the midst of suffering, don't take it out on others, because it's actually a lack, an indicator of a lack of inner peace. Also, when we respond poorly, we will tend to deflect the blame away from ourselves. We'll often blame circumstances. Well, if I hadn't been dealing with, then I wouldn't have fill in the blank. Sometimes we like to blame others. Well, if you hadn't done what you did, if you hadn't said what you said, if you hadn't responded in the way you responded, then I certainly wouldn't have responded in the way I did. And as the rhetoric increases and the finger pointing becomes more vigorous, our tempers begin to boil, words rapidly progress into actions, and in the heat of the moment, our response can escalate to a point that is way beyond appropriate for the situation. Here, James says, don't go there. Don't play the blame game, don't grumble, don't complain, and certainly don't take matters into your own hands. But wait, doesn't the Bible say something about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? After the Ten Commandments, that's probably the most well-known, most quoted, and the most misapplied part of the law that is, there is. Because we often will quote this part of the Old Testament law as justification to exact our pound of flesh. 
In fact, it was given to create boundaries on punishment to ensure that the penalties that were dealt out were fair and proportional. And then in Matthew 5, verses 38 and following, Jesus comes along and reinterprets, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, if someone slaps you on the right side, give them your left cheek. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat. If someone asks you to walk one mile, walk two with them. It's a sobering reminder that we live in an age of imperfect justice. We are governed by imperfect laws that are written, interpreted, enforced, and defended by imperfect people. I am in no way casting shade here. I read an example just this week of a man in Kentucky who was charged with, not convicted of, child pornography. He couldn't afford bail, and so he was jailed until his trial. Further, investiga- first further investigation cleared him of all wrongdoing, and he was released from jail, but by then the damage was done. In a deposition, he said that because of the false charges, he couldn't get a job, he could no longer live in his own hometown, and he couldn't maintain a relationship. He said, quote, my reputation, it's shot. I've got people that I've known for years won't have anything to do with me anymore because they believe the law. And then came the final slap in the face. He got a bill in the mail for $4,008 to recoup the cost of his incarceration. All perfectly legal under the Kentucky Constitution, revised statutes, and common law. A law that was probably intended to conserve taxpayer funds was for him injustice heaped upon injustice. So we have to remember that when we seek justice in the life, in this life, we aren't seeking perfect justice. We just can't. It's just not possible. We can only hope to do our very best. But the justice that Jesus will bring will be perfect. It will be absolutely flawless. Flawless. His final judgment will be fully righteous and absolutely just, neither too lenient nor too harsh. There will be no drop charges. There will be no false convictions. Unless James' poor readers here get too smug, James says, whatever you're thinking, however you're planning to respond, remember two wrongs don't make a right. Your rich oppressors will be judged for their actions, but you too will give an answer for your response. James says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's an awareness of the nearness, the imminence, not just of judgment, but of the presence of God himself. And hopefully that awareness will bring us to a point where we are more quick to, uh, to forgive those who have offended us. And it's certainly hopeful that that awareness will make us more aware in those times that we have offended others. And we will more quickly, more readily seek restoration and reconciliation. Now, it's important, James is not advocating passivity in the face of injustice here. Certainly, where there is injustice, where there is impression, we are are to work to address those issues, to do everything we can to change those circumstances. But ultimately, having done all we can, we have to trust the results in our efforts to God because He is working out His purposes in all things. Patience keeps us grounded in God's justice, but it also keeps us grounded in God's mercy. Two illustrations that James gives us. He says, first of all, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
We can't go through all of the Old Testament prophets, but I chose three here. Elijah, great prophet of God, proclaiming uh, the truth of God. He suffered mentally and emotionally at the hands of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He wasn't perfect. Let's be honest, he got a little squirrely a couple of times in the process of his ministry. But the overarching trajectory of the ministry and the life of Elijah was one of faith and, and, and patience characterized by suffering. Jeremiah, the prophet whose ministry was so hard, he is known as the weeping prophet. He also endured abuse with patience. He was put in the stocks, thrown in prison. He spent time in a, a dungeon. In fact, at one point, he cried out to God and he said, God, just one time, let me proclaim some good news. And even though that request was never granted, Jeremiah never grew bitter. He remained steadfast. Hosea married a woman that he knew would be habitually unfaithful to him. To paint a very graphic image and reminder of the unfaithfulness of Israel to God. He says, Behold, look, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you've also heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job lost all of his flocks and his herds. Think family business, savings, stock portfolio gone, his retirement fund completely wiped out. He lost all of his servants, the employees in his home and his business. He lost all of his children and he lost his health. Listen to Job's statement of his circumstances in his own words. Job 19, beginning with verse 13. He, that is God, has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him from my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All of my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. This is profound suffering, which makes Job's statement of faith that follows next all the more remarkable. Just a few verses down, listen to how he states his faith in God. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he shall stand upon the earth. And after my flesh has been thus destroyed, yet will I see God in my flesh, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. J J James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Everything that Job lost was restored twofold. His righteousness, seriously questioned by his friends, was vindicated by God. But more importantly, we are left with an example of steadfastness in great suffering. You see, even God's justice is grounded in his compassion and mercy. God has a heart for the helpless and the hopeless. He sees and he hears our suffering. The reality is, as harsh as it seems, patience is only perfected in the midst of suffering. And so, for the offender, judgment is an expression of God's justice, but for the offended, judgment is an expression of His compassion and His mercy. Then seemingly out of nowhere comes verse 12. Scholars don't agree on why it appears where it does. Some treat it as a separate command. Others relate it to the previous exhortations, as in James chapter 3, about controlling our speech. 
But if we follow James' stream of thought in this passage, it becomes a little more clear. On closer inspection, we see a pattern in these verses. There's the exhortation to be patient in suffering. And then there's an exhortation of how we are to respond as it relates to controlling our speech. Don't grumble. Don't swear oaths. And the reason for that response is always based in an aspect of God's character, His nature. God is just. God is merciful and compassionate. James's words in verse 12 are strikingly similar to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. There is a tendency to want to defend ourselves or bolster, bolster our own word, especially when we are attempting to justify our response to our suffering. We will promise, we will swear, we will pinky promise, scout's honor, cross our hearts. But when we do that, we are subtly, uh, subtly undermining the veracity not just of our words, but of the content of our character. In essence, we are telling others that our word alone isn't good enough. And so James says, simply say what you mean and mean what you say. Nothing more, nothing less. Because we serve a God whose word isn't just true. John, 7, John 17 reminds us that God's word is truth itself. His word is trustworthy and God is faithful to his promises. And we are called to live in that same trustworthiness and faithfulness. And readers, in case you missed it the first time, you too will stand before the judge. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 12 that we will one day give an account for every empty word that we have spoken. What we're dealing with today is a theology of suffering. If there's been a question that's come to the surface over the years of ministry that I've enjoyed, it goes something like this. How can a loving, merciful God allow the suffering that we see in the world? And the short answer is, it's because we live in a broken world. And the brokenness of the world has filtered into every aspect of life. But we primarily suffer for four reasons. We suffer for our faith in Christ. Think of the millions of martyrs just in the 20th century. Men, women, and yes, children who were not just persecuted for their faith in Christ, but were killed, gave their lives for their faith in Christ. If there's one consistent pattern throughout the history of the church, it is a pattern of suffering. And Jesus told us to expect it. We're blessed when we're persecuted. They did the same to the prophets. They did the same to him. And they will certainly do it to us. Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew that suffering would be a part of his pursuit of eternal life in Christ. In Philippians 3.10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And very often, we'll just stop right there. But Paul goes on to say, and to share in his suffering. We suffer because of um, our faith. We also suffer because of our own sin. When we make choices that are antithetical to the promises and the word of God, we suffer the consequences. Closely related to that is we suffer because of the sin of others. Because we don't sin in a vacuum, many times our disobedience will overflow and impact the lives of others and create suffering. And then finally, the fourth reason we suffer is because of the effects of the fall. The entire creation was impacted by the fall. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that creation is groaning for redemption, longing to be restored recreated so that it's like it was back in Genesis 1 and, Ge and Genesis 2. Consistent pattern of suffering in the church, 
just as that pattern has existed, there has been a, uh, a consistent answer to patience in the midst of suffering, and that is faith. We've been talking in, in different manners about faith that works. And in the midst of suffering, faith that works looks beyond our situation, looks beyond our circumstances, and trusts fully in God's redemptive purpose, His immutable promises. Like Peter walking in the water, Jesus clearly told him he could do it. Peter got out of the boat, began walking on the water, and then he began to look at his circumstances. He saw the waves. He could hear and feel the wind, and he began to sink, and he had to cry out to Jesus to save him. We, too, have that kind of a choice to either allow circumstances to control and paralyze and defeat us, or we can trust in the sure promises of God. Here's the promise, the word of hope today. Finally, suffering has a redemptive purpose. I want you to think about this for a moment. Is not the very heart of the gospel immersed in circumstances that can only be characterized as the most grievous, most shameful injustice ever perpetrated in human history? I mean, think about this. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He was absolutely sinless despite being tempted in every way that we are. He was the only truly innocent man to ever walk the earth. And yet he was betrayed by one of his own, falsely accused, illegally tried, and unjustly convicted. And after being brutally mocked and beaten, a weak Roman leader, bent on self-preservation, placed his, faith, his fate in the hands of a frenzied mob being stirred up by religious leaders. He was wrongly condemned to a death that can only be characterized as the most humiliating, agonizing way to die. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The sinless died for the sinful. One guiltless man paid the penalty for the sin of all of guilty humanity. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He prayed for those who were executing him. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And this great exchange makes it possible for believers not only to be patient in suffering, but to, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 3, rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, that same kind of patient, perseverant life that we are called to live here. Endurance produces character. That is, it molds us, forms us into Christ's likeness. And that Christ-like character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, literally does not embarrass us. When our hope is in God, we will not be left hung out to dry because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'll share just a couple of things that I've seen over the course of my ministry. And these I've, I've seen to be true not just in my life, but in the lives of so many others that I've had the privilege of serving. Suffering is inevitable, but suffering is seasonal. What do you mean? Suffering comes, suffering goes. And it's in the midst of suffering, sometimes profound suffering, that God does some of his greatest work in the hearts and lives of his people. And so with that in mind, our prayer is that God would help us to better see his redemptive purposes in times of suffering and to grow in our ability to be patient when those times come. And to that we say, Amen.
Message Church family, every week we participate in the Lord's Supper together. And my goodness, I mean, it's timely every week. I always say this. I say it too much, but it's timely again. Uh, this meal that we are participating right now as a people of God, well, number one, it's an opportunity uh, to be spiritually nourished in a way that actually helps us persevere in the midst of difficulties. Uh, number two, it reminds us that Christ also suffered. And so we are uh, walking with a Jesus who knows what it's like to experience extreme pain, uh, just like Brian was talking about a minute ago. And it confirms the seasonality of our suffering. So even if you're one of those people who is thinking to yourself, you know, I understand that it's seasonal, but I, see I have a lot of seasons of suffering. Uh, one day it will end. Uh, glory be to God for the people of God. Um, Christ will return and we will be ushered into this new heaven, new earth, and their suffering will be no more. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup. And as he poured it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. And as I was just talking about, he's, he's coming again because he rose again. And so his second coming is certain. And again, for the people of God, for the children of God, we will be uh, with God forever in a, in a beautiful and perfect city where mourning and suffering are, and sin are absolutely gone. They are, they are no more. If you are watching this and you're a follower of Jesus, please, we would encourage you to participate in this meal in some way. I take whatever you have in your home um, that's closest to the bread and the cup. Do what you can. Do, what, do your very best. God totally understands the circumstances and the limitations that we're dealing with right now. If you're watching this and you would not say that you are a follower of Jesus, first of all, we're glad you're watching. Thank you for uh, finding this uh, YouTube channel or I, us on iTunes, whatever the case may be, and engaging. We would love to have a conversation with you. Uh, we would love it if you would reach out for us, but most importantly, instead of taking a meal that you wouldn't say that you believe in right now, we would really encourage you um, to just be reflecting on uh, what we've been talking about. Christianity actually gives us hope in the midst of suffering. Would you put your hope in Christ Jesus even at this very moment? I'm going to pray for us, and then there will be a moment for reflection and prayer and to take those communion elements. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us this meal that indeed reminds us um, that Christ also suffered. It reminds us um, <laughs> that, Lord, you in your grace and mercy have given us resources to persevere just like this meal. Um, and it reminds us that uh, even though suffering comes and it comes, it, it will end for the people of God, for the children of God one day. And so we give you praise. I do pray that you would cause us, Lord, in this moment to to, to take, to kind of uncover sin and bring it to you, especially a sin that might be related uh, to some of the suffering we're dealing with. That is uh, some of that grumbling and, and complaining. If there's some of that that we have, uh, that maybe has even been exposed during this service, I pray that we would take it to you and that we would freshly enjoy the grace of God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
buried dreams lead them deep into the earth behind the sun. Our goodbyes at the grave, but everything reminds us God knows we ain't. When He asks us to go on, how do we go on? We will sing to our souls, we won't bear. There's a
sing, you give life. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So pour out our praise to you only. Sing all that again. You give the earth will shout your praise. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will Great are you, Lord. Sing it one more time. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. It's your
Thank you for joining us. Praise God for giving us this gracious opportunity to worship Him, to be strengthened in our faith. And again, if you're watching and you wouldn't say that you know Jesus, we hope that this has been a transformative time for you as well. We would love to have a conversation with you about what it looks like to put your hope in Christ Jesus. Hear this benediction, then we will sing the doxology together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord uh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Go in peace.